So last week we kicked off a new teaching series here at Roots called Refined, Discovering the Jesus Way After Deconstruction. Deconstruction is a hot topic these days, since more and more people are critically rethinking some of the beliefs of the Christian faith. But as I've said now for two weeks in a row, deconstruction doesn't necessarily mean rejection. Deconstruction can be a precursor to rejuvenation, like the popular genre of fixer-upper or house-flipping shows. In order to renovate a dilapidated or potentially dangerous house into a beautiful and safe home, you've got to go through demo day, right? You've got to strip that house down to bare studs, and you've got to see what's going on with the wiring, see what's going on with the plumbing, and check the foundation. And that's why this morning we're going to talk about the foundation. But I want to be crystal clear about a few things, just so that no one is confused. I think that when faith communities forbid people from critically evaluating the Christian faith or shame or exclude people from doing so, for doing so, that they end up robbing people of a valuable experience of our faith and needlessly creating crises of faith or setting people up to fail when they will eventually, inevitably encounter substantial challenges to our faith. So I believe that providing space for people to process, explore, evaluate, even doubt, is crucial for healthy faith communities. And I want to see Roots be one of those communities. But I also want to be clear that by embracing this word deconstruction, I'm not endorsing what every person means by this word. I've encountered some people who use this word to mean that they have completely walked away from the Christian faith. That's not renovating a house to live in it. That's taking a wrecking ball to the house. And that's not what I mean by this word. In fact, I think that calling that deconstruction is not accurate at all. There's a difference between a thoughtful process of deconstruction that embodies the principle of faith-seeking understanding on the one hand, and utter destruction out of some kind of anger or despair on the other. If someone feels deeply hurt or betrayed, I wouldn't recommend deconstruction to that person. I'd recommend that they talk to someone, talk to a pastor, talk to a therapist, talk to both. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation if possible. The kind of deconstruction that we are talking about in this series is the faith-seeking understanding kind. For us, faith is trusting confidence, allegiance, and love for God. This kind of faith drives us to want to know more about God. And the more we learn about God, the more we love God. So the deconstruction we're talking about is renovation, not demolition. I don't endorse living in a perpetual job site or construction zone like the money pit. We want, to be, we want to get to a place where we are comfortable living in the house, even if we know that there's always going to be some more work to be done. Homeowners are always fixing things, doing maintenance, maybe even adding an addition or remodeling a room. But the point of a home is to live in it, not to keep tearing it down and rebuilding it. And that's why this week we're going to talk about the foundation that we're building in this series, the Jesus Way. 
from the, sub, sub, from the subtitle of the series, Discovering the Jesus Way After Deconstruction. Throughout this series, we're going to keep pointing back to the Jesus Way as the home that we want to live in, even if we know that there's some deconstruction we have to go through to get there. So in a moment, we're going to read from a, a text that I think is really critical for the series. But before we do that, can we pray for the Spirit's illumination? Holy Spirit, once again, we, we come to you because we need you. We need you to shine your light of illumination, of understanding on the scriptures that we opened this morning. Illuminate them, we pray, to our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, I pray for each and every person here today and who, who hears this later. If anyone is struggling right now, anyone has doubts, anyone is uh, questioning, searching, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, would lead us in a posture of faith-seeking understanding deeper and deeper into greater love for God. And I pray for this series, that it would, that it would bear fruit in our lives. I pray that uh, you would be with me as I, as I preach this morning, and I pray that you would be with each person uh, as we hear your word. And I pray that that word would be like a seed, and it would, it would be planted on fertile ground and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, if you have a translation of the Bible, uh, you are welcome to turn in it to Matthew chapter 7, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to read from the NIV, starting in verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Thanks be to God. So, several people have told me about the moment when they lost their faith in God. And these people didn't know each other, but they all shared the testimony of a similar feeling. And that feeling is one of having the earth suddenly removed from beneath your feet and the sensation of free-falling in space. And I have actually had this feeling once. I had this feeling the moment after I was notified that I was expelled from Bible college. Now that is a very long story that I do not have time to tell you uh, all now. But let me reassure you that it was for a very stupid reason. Uh, I was let back in and I did eventually graduate. Thanks be to God. So, happy ending. But the moment directly following when I was notified that I was expelled from Bible college, I felt like my entire world had collapsed. I suddenly and violently questioned everything I thought I knew. Whether God is real, all of my experiences with God, and I even questioned everybody who I trusted moments before that. I felt all alone in the world, and I felt like I was falling. This passage that we just heard read is from the very end of Jesus' most famous set of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And they're like, Jesus, concentrate. 
The Sermon on the Mount starts off with Jesus' revolutionary teaching on the kingdom of God. He doesn't, the kingdom of God doesn't belong to the rich and powerful. It's not the inheritance of the ruthless or the winners of wars. The kingdom of God subverts all of our natural inclinations about who runs the world, who's important, and who's favored by God. And then from there, it's like rapid fire. Bold, concise, dense teachings on everything from murder to divorce to hatred to self-defense to prayer and fasting. But then at the end, Jesus makes this statement that we just heard, which is a construction metaphor. He compares his teaching to a house built on a firm foundation. And he compares those who don't follow his teaching to a house built on sinking sand battered by storms. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this series and why I was really excited about this series is because I know way too many people who have lost their faith because their foundation was sinking sand. Their faith wasn't built on the rock that Jesus is talking about. I've known way too many people who told me that their pastor or some Christian leader or some, somebody they admired from afar fell into sin or committed some heinous crime, and because of that, they are no longer a follower of Jesus. I know way too many people have told me that they grew up in some form of strict fundamentalism, and they were taught never to question the Bible. Then they went to college, and they took Psych 101, or Biology 101, or Philosophy 101, and their faith came tumbling down like a house of cards. I know way too many people have told me that they thought following Jesus meant that they had to be morally perfect. But they just kept failing themselves and others so they could no longer follow Jesus because they're not going to be perfect, so why even try? These foundations are sand. None of them is the rock that Jesus is talking about. The firm foundation Jesus is talking about is his way of life, which is a way of love. Jesus' way of love is a life lived trusting God, allegiant to Jesus, flowing in the rhythms of God's grace. The way of Jesus is a way of life in which we get out of our own way and allow God's love to flow through our lives. The core of this love teaching from Jesus' life is so obvious that we easily dismiss it. That's not important. We've built so much on top of that that we've built obstacles in the way of people following Jesus. And some of what we've added to the Jesus way should rightfully be deconstructed. The first foundation of sand that I think should be rightfully deconstructed is the foundation of fear. This foundation has a lot of manifestations. I can't list all of them to you. But some people don't know Jesus apart from the fear packaging built around Jesus. They know Jesus loves me, but God wants to burn me eternally in hell. Jesus is wonderful because he saves us from his really angry dad who poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. Or they're just taught that if they ever question their faith, they're sinning against God, and so they never do it, and they're afraid to do it. When I was a new Christian, I introduced someone to Jesus, and they began following Jesus, and I told this person, go and find a good church and so you can grow in your faith, which was stupid because I did not tell them what kind of church to go find. And when I checked in with her later, she said this church was controlling her entire life. She was assigned a discipler. And this discipler was checking on her every single day. 
and saying that she couldn't date anyone outside of that particular church, even if they were a Christian. And that she had to pray an hour every morning or she could backslide and go to hell. And I was like, oh, what have I done? That kind of legalism is not the only way that fear gets built on top of the Jesus way, but it's a common one. And it should rightfully be deconstructed. Another way that fear shows up is through creating a scary boogeyman. Some churches talk more about how scary the world is and how we should avoid scary non-Christians. They talk more about that than how wonderful Jesus is. It's way too common for some versions of Christian faith to perfectly align with the conservative versus liberal culture wars, right? And I'm talking about both. There are fear-based forms of progressive and conservative Christian faith. There is a word for when we create an evil other chosen to create group cohesion among us versus them, and that's called demagoguery. And fear-based so-called faith that's based on scary boogeyman deserves to be deconstructed, should be deconstructed. But there's also subtler forms of fear-based faith that maybe someone, many of us in this room struggle with. We might hear a voice in our heads repeatedly saying we're not worthy enough, we're not righteous enough, we're not something enough. And we have somewhere along the line got the idea that we should attribute that voice to God. So all of our anxieties, our self-doubt, or trauma that we may have sustained in childhood, we attribute that to God. And of course, that's deeply unhealthy. And it feels like being a hamster on a wheel, just trying to work harder and harder to love that God who's dis dissatisfied with us. That, that fear-based faith, too, needs to be deconstructed. Because Jesus' way of love is in direct opposition to all fear. The primary way Jesus spoke about our relationship with God is as a loving father to his children. The Jesus way isn't if afraid of the truth. It isn't afraid of evaluation or investigation. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Jesus way doesn't create scary boogeymen or scapegoats that we can heap all of our hatred upon. Jesus became a scapegoat to end all scapegoating. This fear-based faith is part of my deconstruction story as well. But like I said before, I'm really grateful that I was given space. I was given permission to question, to doubt, to explore. I think that, that that really saved my faith on many occasions. Someone who I've learned a lot from about the Jesus way is a man named Richard Twiss. Uh, he's a Lakota Sioux native Christian who, who went to be with the creator several years ago, but his life's work was to help people deconstruct the harmful ways that cultural assimilation has robbed us of following the Jesus way. This story from his book, One Church, Many Tribes, I think encapsulates uh, this well. He says, I remember a few months after I committed my life to Jesus in Maui, I began to wonder how my Lakota heritage could be part of my new Christian experience. So one afternoon, I asked one of the pastoral leaders, how am I supposed to relate to my native culture as a Christian? I distinctly remember him opening the Bible he was carrying 
and reading from Galatians 3.28, where Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. After reading the passage, this pastoral leader comments on how cultures should all blend together for us as Christians. He then concluded, So Richard, don't worry about being Indian, just be like us. Though he perhaps wasn't aware of it, essentially what he was saying was, forget your Indianness and embrace our white culture as the only Christian culture. Being young and naive and sincerely committed to becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus, I listened. So for the next eight years, I lived the Christian life as it was culturally modeled for me by non-native friends and Christian brethren. I have since found this way of life to be less than who I am, much less than who the Lord wants me to be. For Richard Twist and many others, Jesus was presented in the packaging of Western white culture. And that has led way too many people to feeling like they have to walk away from Jesus to be who God created them to be. But Jesus absolutely is not white. I have to say that unequivocally. Jesus isn't European or American. Jesus is a brown-skinned Judean man, a Jewish man. Jesus didn't create America, and he didn't teach manifest destiny or any other kind of justification for cultural erasure, violence, or genocide. The white Western foundation of sand deserves to be deconstructed because Jesus sent out his disciples to all the people groups of the world, not to colonize them, but so that the seed of the kingdom of God could grow a unique expression of the Jesus way in every culture. God calls on all the nations to give the best of our cultures back to God in worship and service to others. You can see that in Revelation chapter 21. In the same way that I believe providing space for people to process, explore, evaluate, even doubt, is crucial for healthy faith communities, I also believe it's crucial to reject the white supremacy that makes white Western culture normative for Christian culture. Healthy deconstruction in our faith journeys includes critically evaluating places where we have uncritically absorbed white Western culture and have conflated it with following Jesus. Amen? All right. Good. Don't shout me down. But there's another insidious foundation of sand that I think might be a greater temptation for those of us in this room than the previous two. And that's relativism. Relativism is a key feature of our postmodern world today. Many people in the Western world have rejected the idea that there is one overarching story that unites the whole world, like the triumph of democracy or the inevitable progress of civilization. And some people have thrown the baby Jesus out with the modern bathwater. They think that Christianity is just another one of those overarching stories to be rejected. They say, sure, Jesus had some good things to say. I like Jesus, but I also like Rumi and other gurus. So why can't I take the best of all of them and just build my own spirituality? But this new relativism is a foundation of sand because it rejects the rock that Jesus is talking about in our passage today. Jesus is not only talking about his ethical teachings when he talks about the rock on which we should build our lives. He's also talking about 
being joined with him in a covenantal relationship of love like marriage. Jesus not only teaches his way, but he also teaches that he is the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this is sometimes makes, makes us feel uncomfortable. This claim of Jesus could sound exclusionary. And there's a significant number of us for whom nothing raises our hackles more than the idea of excluding people. Am I right? Well, here's where I just have to admit that in this sermon, I don't have time to address all of the implications of Jesus' exclusive claims. Um, but I am asking you to stick around for the rest of the series because we are devoting entire sermons to some of these questions. Uh, questions like evangelism, questions like heaven and hell. And, um, but we'll, what I will say about Jesus' exclusive claims is that they are easily misunderstood. When we take a step back and we survey the whole story of the Bible, what we find is that God has always sought to redeem all the people groups of the world. Since God made a covenant with Abraham, God told Abraham he would be the father of many nations. And so God's mission has always been an inclusive one. God forms a people for God's self, Israel, not as Israel against the nations, but as Israel for the nations. In the same way, Jesus and his disciples form a church. And that church is not the church against the world. That church is the church for the world. So the Jesus way is an exclusive covenantal relationship with Jesus himself, but it's one into which Jesus invites everyone. Relativism doesn't unite us to Jesus himself. It abstracts his teaching from his life. But Jesus' way isn't just abstract ethical teachings. It's about the embodiment of love in and through Jesus' human life, through his death and through his resurrection. So for example, take this passage from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So here the writer of 1 John is saying that Jesus' actual death on the cross is the ethical basis for our imitation of Christ's love. To love like Jesus loves means self-giving, sacrificial love precisely because that's what Jesus actually demonstrated on the cross. The relativism that says we can abstract the teachings of Jesus from the person and life of Jesus deserves to be deconstructed. And there are likely many, many other shifting sands that people have built their lives upon that I could have listed this morning, but these three were top of my list. But I don't just want to point out the foundations of sand. I also want to suggest that as we go forward in this series, we critically evaluate some beliefs of the Christian faith on our way to a very clear foundation, the rock upon which we are building our lives. And I, really, and I, and I want to invite Scott McKnight to once again help us in this journey. I know he was a big part of the Roman series, uh, but once again, 
uh, I think that he does a really good job of drilling down to the bedrock of what the Jesus way is all about in his book, The Jesus Creed. Essentially, McKnight discovered and popularized the insight that Jesus had a signature rabbinical teaching, like many other rabbis of his day. Often rabbis would come up, come up with their own way of encapsulating the whole Torah, the whole law of Moses. And in the Gospels, this is exactly what Jesus was asked by a Torah expert in Matthew chapter 13. It says, Reading, uh, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. McKnight notes that the first half of Jesus' answer is an essential part of the most important Jewish prayer called the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that all observant Jews pray each and every morning and each and every evening. Jesus would have done this. All of Jesus' disciples would have done this. The Shema prayer is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it goes like this. Hear, which is the word Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. McKnight shows that when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he modifies the Shema, adding a passage from the book of Leviticus. The Jesus Creed is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus revises the Shema in two ways. Loving others is added to loving God, and loving God is understood as following Jesus. This is the Jesus Creed, and it is foundational to everything Jesus teaches about spiritual formation. Jesus knows what life is all about, and that life is about love, love for God and love for others. So as we continue in this series, we're going to continually be exploring the Jesus Creed as the center of the Jesus way. But as I close, let me, let me just speak a little bit biographically. From virtually the first day I came to faith, I have been a questioner. I have been a gadfly of the Christian faith. I have questioned everything. I pick it apart. And, and I've shared here before that some of the answers I received early on were so unsatisfactory to me that they set me on a journey, like a quest, to discover better answers. And that's why I've basically devoted my whole life to learning and teaching the Jesus way. But that doesn't mean that I am done asking questions. I still question. I still doubt. And I'm still not done learning. This series is not about finding easy answers and being done with the faith thing like we've arrived or something. It's about diving deeper and deeper into the inexhaustible mystery of God. It's about deconstructing fear-based faith, cultural assimilation-based faith, 
and relativism-based faith. Because there's something about Jesus, there's something about his life, his teachings, and his presence in my life that has totally captivated me. And it's why I continue to do what I do. It's why I stay in this faith fight. No matter how cynical I become, and no matter how much I fail. Jesus has a hold on me that I can't shake. So my prayer for Roots is that, as we continue in this series, that we would be able to give each other grace. That we'd be able to provide for, our, for, for each other that non-judgmental friendship that I talked about two weeks ago. That we could give each other space to deconstruct and space to begin living out the Jesus way as trusting yet humble confidence. So let me remind you that we have uh, provided spaces for you. Uh, our Misfit Meals, um, we are converting them into brave spaces this, this series. Um, we want to make a covenant with each other that we will provide that non-judgmental friendship, that we will hear one another uh, with the best of intentions in, our, in our, the way we hear each other, and we will keep each other's confidence as we, as we struggle, as we wrestle. And also I want to remind you that you can sign up to meet uh, one-on-one or two-on-one with uh, one of the pastoral staff, with Pastor, Pastor Durr, Pastor Oshida, myself. Um, if you have questions, if you're wrestling, if you're struggling, if you just need somebody to talk to, uh, please use our sign-up form. And with that, let me, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a loving Father. I thank you that Jesus has revealed you to us in a way that shows your great love. Jesus has walked a human life, has lived in a human life, and has showed us the way of love, how to love you and how to love others. Father, I pray that we would be caught up in the way of Jesus, his way of love. And I pray that it would destroy, it would deconstruct all fear-based faith, all cultural assimilation-based faith, and all relativism-based faith. I pray that it would deconstruct all the harmful ways in which we have built upon uh, obstacles on top of the Jesus way. And I pray that we would be able to drill down into that essential component of loving you and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Make roots into that kind of community, I pray. I pray that we would be a safe place, a brave place for people to explore, to question, to investigate, to doubt, to deconstruct, and to reconstruct on the Jesus way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.